0: with me. Holy Spirit, we are always dependent upon you to be able to hear from you this morning, to hear a clear word preached. And I pray, Lord, that my words would become your words and that you would speak a word to each one of your children this morning. Speak, O Lord, your servants are listening. Amen. Well, a few of you may have noticed, uh, we're actually, we're missing some of our, our Windsor folks. Uh, our Windsor residents have a quarantine right now uh, because of the norovirus, and so they were instructed to stay at home uh, over the weekend, and uh, we actually were making a, a live stream available thanks to, to Kurt, and uh, we messaged them that, that link, and so I want to greet my Windsor folks if any of you are, uh, are tuning in on live stream, and uh, that's where they are, so we need to be praying for them, and wanted make, to make you aware of that. Now, the title of uh, this morning's sermon is Saved by the Cross. Have you been saved? Anybody's been saved here this morning? Yeah, a few, a few of you out there. Uh, what do we think of this word, saved? You know, I think to be saved was, this was the kind of language that uh, I grew up with uh, in an evangelical church. People would say this, this kind of language, you know, I was saved uh, at such and such time, and I used to start my testimony by saying I grew up in a Christian home, but I was saved when I was such and such age. And so we we hear this language often uh, in the evangelical church. Um, And people might have asked you, have you ever been saved? When when were you saved? Now, I have no data to back this up, but for some reason we're using this terminology less and less, it seems like. It doesn't seem to be language that is common anymore. Uh, And I think there's many reasons for that. I, I think... Maybe uh, perhaps to say I am saved has lost some of its meaning. Or maybe we've, we've lost its meaning somewhere along the way because I think what happened was, was getting saved kind of became synonymous with praying the sinner's prayer, accepting Christ into your heart, and now you're saved. And I think for many people have begun to realize that that just isn't quite enough. That's just a little bit too small. That's not exactly what it means to be saved. It's a little trite. It kind of, and some people might critique it by saying, you know, it kind of turns salvation into this transaction between you and God. It's just something you get by praying a prayer and now it's done. And so getting saved kind of became this trite transaction and we've kind of lost the meaning of what it means to really be saved. The glorious meaning of what it means to be saved. And I think another reason is we know a lot of saved people who don't look like they've been saved from anything. We know a lot of saved people who pray to prayer who don't look like Jesus has saved them from all too much. And so we wonder, really, what does it mean to be saved? If that person's saved, I'm not sure what it means to be saved from anymore. And friends, so it's it's time for us to go back to the Word of God, back to the Scriptures and examine what does it mean to be saved. How are we saved? How can one be saved? Can we recapture and reuse this language? I believe we can. I believe we can. So let's, let's dig in. Would you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Titus towards the end of the New Testament? We're going to look at chapter 3, verses 3 through 8. It was a scripture reading for this morning. It's the Apostle Paul's letter uh, to his other young mentee, Titus. And uh, as you're turning there, I'll set this up a little bit more. We're, we're in the fifth week uh, of our sermon series on the cross. And uh, yes, of course, we're, we're saved by the cross, uh, but not only by the cross. Because in many respects, this whole series has been, a, been about a larger concept called salvation. And how all of the, the work of Christ has done to save us. And you might begin to think, man, after four weeks, what else do you have left to say? <laughs> well, there's a lot. There's a lot. We haven't even scratched the surface of all the glorious things that God has done for us in Christ. And today we're going to be addressing some of, I believe, the most important Beliefs and doctrines of the Christian faith. And if being saved, if being saved is necessary, if that is something that we must have in our lives, then of course it is one of the most important things, if not the most important thing, that we should all understand. And that we should all understand in order to help others to be saved also. So how are we saved? Through Christ. Well, number one, we are saved by being justified through the cross. We are saved by being justified through the cross. Ah, the famous doctrine of the Reformation. Justification by grace through faith alone. What a glorious belief. It's been described as one of the most important beliefs and doctrines of our faith. And uh, we must understand what this means. And so to define it clearly as best as I can, justification means God declaring us righteous in his sight. God declaring us righteous in his sight. So we've been using, you know, kind of several metaphors uh, throughout this series to describe how God saves us. A couple weeks ago, we talked about uh, the cross being the sacrifice of atonement. And that was using the temple metaphor, the, the imagery of the sacrificial system. And then last week, we talked about redemption. And that brought us to the slave market, where people are bought out of slavery and set free. And now this idea of justification, it takes us from the temple, it takes us from the slave market, and it brings us into the courtroom before God, standing before the judgment seat of God. This is what the scriptures teach. This is a couple verses, Isaiah 33, 2. For the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. And Paul says we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Brothers and sisters, the Bible presents this as a problem for us. Because of our choices, because of our behavior, because our sins cannot be justified. There can there be no just basis for how we have acted before a holy and righteous God. And so even though God loves us, the question is, how can we leave this courtroom unscathed? Paul says this in Titus 3.3, he says, At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, Deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. So in other words, he says, our lifestyle before Christ was incredibly full of sin. And this is true of all humanity, that we all disobey the laws of God. And as a whole, we discussed last week, humanity is deceived and we're enslaved by sin. And so we almost, we can't even help it because we're enslaved to it. And all of this, Paul says, leads to strife, to people hating each other, to malice, to envy, to all of these broken human relationships. That's where sin leaves us. And it reminds me of Romans 3, that famous verse that says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All are guilty before the throne. Is anybody here bold enough to admit they've ever gotten a red light ticket? You know those camera things? All right, thank you. Thank you, all of you. Okay, a few more than I thought. Uh, Now, (laughs) the rest of you weren't bold enough. So I'll admit, Laura and I have received a couple. And uh, the story I'm about to share, I'm not going to reveal the identity of who is driving. uh, But that's not important for the story. Uh, But I tell you guys, you got to be careful. Roosevelt and Winfield Road. It'll get you. If you want to make a right onto Winfield from Roosevelt, you better be sure that your tires come to a full and complete stop at that rent. (laughs) Or DuPage County is going to know about it. (laughs) And that's what happened to us. You know what? When they they find out about it, they send you a letter in the mail, and you can click on a link, and the link will take you to a video. (laughs) And it will show your car, your license plate, not coming to that full stop and just skirting right on by, and boom, they got you. They got it on video. A hundred bucks down the drain. Man, oh man. So when you're coming to church, be careful at that intersection. (laughs) But there's nothing you can say because they've caught you right-handed. There's nothing I could do. I was caught. Friends, in the same way, God sees everything we do. And not just what we do, he also knows the motives. He knows our feelings. He knows our thoughts. And when we approach the judgment seat of God at the end of our lives, he's got it all on video. He's seen the whole thing. We've been caught... There is nothing we can say. We have been caught red-handed. So there's nothing we can do to justify ourselves. So we can't save ourselves. Self-salvation is an impossibility. And there's not enough good that we can do to make sure our verdict is not guilty. Listen to what Paul says in the text. Verses 4 and 5. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared... He saved us because we were really good enough and we made the cut. Oh, hold on. Sorry, that was the wrong wrong translation. It says, no, he saved us because we did enough good to outweigh the bad. Oh, hold on. Are you guys looking at your Bibles? I I think I'm getting this wrong. No. No, it says, what does it really say? He saved us not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. Praise be to God for that. We can't stand before the judgment seat and say, well, you know, we were, we were a pretty good person, Lord. We did pretty good. We weren't as bad as such and such person over there. No, no, no. Not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. So I want to lay it out for you as best as I understand how this justification idea works. And I, and I need to give a little bit of credit, actually a lot of credit to John Stott, who I've been doing a lot of reading with for this series. He's kind of helped me understand this and put some wording to it. And he talks about how the source of our justification is God's grace or his mercy. Look at verse 7 in the text. It says we are justified by his grace. So the source of our justification comes from the grace of God. That means his kindness to us when we didn't deserve it. His mercy towards us when we had, there was not an ounce of it that we deserved, but yet he gives us his grace freely and generously. But for God to do this, for God to be just, he has to have a just cause, a righteous reason for declaring us guilty people, innocent and righteous in his sight. You know, in fact, when God was setting up his kingdom for the Israelites, he gave certain commandments. And one of the commandments was he told the judges, you shall never uh, uh, declare an innocent person to be guilty, and you shall never acquit the guilty and declare them to be innocent. That was something the judges were never supposed to do because that would turn the whole society upside down if the innocent innocent were condemned for something they didn't do and the guilty were let go with with no punishment. So he said, this is something judges should never do. So how can God do something he told other judges never to do? How can God declare us guilty people to be innocent and still be a good judge and still be righteous? Well, friends, the good news is God can do that. Because he has a just reason. He has a just basis, a righteous reason for declaring guilty people to be innocent. And the ground of that reason, the basis for our justification, is the cross of Christ. It is the cross of Christ. Paul says in Romans 5, 9, we have now been justified by his blood. That means that Jesus on the cross, he took, the penalty for our sin. He bore the curse of the law, the condemnation that we deserved so that we could be justified. The innocent takes the punishment in our place so we can be set free. And so it makes us truly righteous in his sight and it maintains God's character in his justice. So we must give thanks to God for this. Because justification, it includes forgiveness. You know, Gene said it so great up here. It's just as if I never sinned. And so it's standing, when we're standing before the judgment seat of God, when we're justified, it's the judge gives us his pardon, his granting of forgiveness for the things that we have done. And not only are we forgiven, praise God, but it's more than that. It's also God's declaration that you are righteous in his sight. And friends, what God declares to be is so. When God said, let there be light, you know what? There was light. And when God says, when God declares, you are righteous in my sight, guess what? You are now righteous in his sight. And no matter how much sin you've done, no matter how much guilt or shame that you feel, when God declares you to be righteous in Christ, you are so. Praise God. We are righteous in his sight because he declares it. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because we have been justified. Through his blood. The second thing that we need to understand about being saved is we are saved by being born again through the Holy Spirit. We are saved by being born again through the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 5. It says, He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. So, in other words, He saved, to be saved means that we must be reborn or born again. And if being saved maybe has kind of fallen a little bit out of our language, perhaps born again has had a bigger fall, I might say. Uh, I mean, because this was, this was the cry. This was the question of Billy Graham evangelicals. Have you been born again? Are you a born-again Christian? Have you, have, has Jesus become real in your life? This was the question of evangelicals for decades. And I believe it is still essential ...to the Christian faith today... ...and that we need to recapture this. You know, we're part of a denomination... ...called the Covenant Church, if you didn't know. And uh, the Covenant, we we have six affirmations... six things that are the core things... ...that we say this is the most important. And one of them is the necessity of the new birth. The necessity of the new birth. That people must be born again. That they must have this experience... of, ...of a real relationship with Jesus Christ... ...turning from sin... And placing their faith in Jesus. But friends, it's this is more than just a denominational distinctive, all right? I mean, this is the words of Jesus Christ. Look what he says in John 3 3. He says, very truly, pay attention, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Plain as day. That's what Jesus says. And he says it because it's not just our standing before God that needs to be justified. And saved, it's our very selves that need to be saved. Because sin causes our spirits to, to wither and die. And without a spiritual intervention, without a brand new renewal and rebirth, we will be separated from God. We cannot enter the next life in the state of the flesh. We have to be born again. It's impossible to enter God's kingdom without this renewal, without this washing of the Holy Spirit of God. And I believe the cross has paved the way for this to happen. Because in Christ, the old self is killed. All that sin and all the, all the stuff of the old way, that's, that's destroyed on the cross and something new is ready to be born in its place. That is why the Apostle Paul could say, I have been crucified with Christ. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In other words, My old self died, and I've been born again. That's what happened to the Apostle Paul. And so when we put our faith and trust in Christ, what happens is the old self dies, and the Holy Spirit comes in and makes a dramatic change. Theologians use the terms regeneration or recreation, uh, and we call it born again. And so the Holy Spirit transforms us from the inside out so that our desires Our hearts, our minds, and our souls, they move from being oriented to the things of the flesh and sin, and they become oriented to the things of God and the Spirit, because we are now born of the Spirit. So Paul can say in 2 Corinthians 5.17, If anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, and the new is here. Praise the Lord. It's a totally new state before God, made possible by the Holy Spirit. And so, most people, when they uh, think about being born again, inevitably, you'll get this question, well, does that mean that you need to have some type of dramatic testimony? Does that mean you need to have one of those stories that you hear about where someone was the prodigal son type story, they're going away from Christ, and then, boom, the Holy Spirit came into their life, and now they have a dramatic change. Do we need that? The answer is no. No, we don't need that, because that is not what being born again means. Now some people, praise God, do have these stories. Some people, they have the Apostle Paul type story, where they were wandering away from Christ, where they were were living in sin, They they wanted nothing to do with God, and boom, in an instant, God changes their life, and from that day forward, they are forever different. And I'm sure many of you can think of people who have had that happen to them. Praise the Lord for that. But for a lot of other people, they don't have that testimony. They might be more like the Apostle Peter, it's been, it's been more of a process. It's been a journey with Christ. And over time, you have, you have experienced a transformation. And some of us, we don't even remember how we became a Christian. It's just been there our whole lives. You know what? That's okay. That is okay. That is the grace of God in your life. I mean, does anybody here remember being born? I mean, physically speaking? <laughs> I think Matthias told me one time he has a memory from when he is two, uh, but that's the earliest I've ever heard. I, no one has a memory of being physically born. But does that mean you weren't born? No. The fact that you are here proves that you were born. And the same can be true spiritually speaking. You don't have to remember when you were born again. Uh, you don't have to have this dramatic moment of, of crisis or transformation in, in an instant. No, if you have, if your desires have been changed from being oriented towards the old life of sin and, and flesh, and now your life is oriented towards the things of the Spirit, if you have a desire for God, if you really love Jesus and want to grow as his disciple, if those are the desires of your heart, then guess what? You've been born again. You're a child of God. That is the evidence for it. And furthermore, being born again doesn't mean that you have to have it all together, friends. In fact, it means when 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 someone's born, a growth process has begun. And this process in our lives is usually called sanctification, that we get to grow, that we get to grow to be like Christ. And how we grow as disciples of Jesus is through the work of the Spirit as he continues his work and through the ministry of the body of Christ. And one day, this process is going to be complete. So Paul can say in Philippians 1, he who began a good work in you, it began, you will, he will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. One day, we will be made perfectly holy like Christ. Sin won't tarnish our lives anymore, praise God, and we will be all that we were made to be. In this end state, when we're finally renewed with God, it's called our glorification. The glory that we were meant to have in the beginning in the garden is restored. And so if you'll indulge me for a minute, I want to give you a few theological terms that some of you might appreciate. If you don't like it, just toss it out. But I think this is helpful to you. So theologians will call this process of salvation, it starts with our justification, our right standing before God has been declared. Then the Holy Spirit comes in, our regeneration, we've been born again. And the process of sanctification has been started. And now we're, we're being made holy in Christ. And one day we will experience glorification. That we will be all that we were made to be. In Christ, So we are saved by being born again by the Holy Spirit as he starts this process of transformation in our lives. And finally, we are saved by becoming heirs with the hope of eternal life. Look at verse 7. So that, having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. You see, being born again, means you're born into a new family. And that is the family of God. That makes God our Father, all of us brothers and sisters in the faith, and that makes us heirs of the family inheritance. You know, many parents, they hope to pass something down to their children or grandchildren. You know, whether it's some money or some possessions or maybe some type of family heirlooms, goes to the heir. And these are things that, you know, parents want to pass down. Uh, But not just anybody can come and claim your stuff. When you die, no, it has to be the so- someone who it is, it is meant to go to. It has to be an heir. It's usually those who are in the family. In the same way, God has an inheritance for all his sons and daughters, and it's called eternal life. Friends, this is a really good inheritance to be lined up to get <laughs> because, because it means being forever with God, it means your body being restored. It means all your worries and cares and stress, all the anxiety that you carry with you, gone. It means full joy and peace and happiness in the presence of God forever and ever into eternity. That is the inheritance that God has for his sons and daughters. Now, obviously, we don't have it yet because it is an inheritance. We have to go through this life. We have to go through many trials and troubles on our way. But one day, we will receive the inheritance of the family. And so in order to be saved from death, from judgment, from separation from God, we need to be given this inheritance of eternal life. We need to inherit it from God. And the good news is he is glad to do it. John three sixteen, you know it. For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. And when you become part of the family, now you have the hope of inheritance, eternal life in the kingdom of God. Isn't that good news? Let me recap where we've been this morning. We are saved. How are we saved? We are saved by being justified through the cross. We are saved by being born again through the Holy Spirit. And we are saved by becoming heirs with the hope of eternal life. And this means that our past is saved It means our present is saved and it means our future is saved because they're all in the hands of God, God's grace. And so you might be able to say that, yes, we have been saved, we are being saved and we will be saved one day. Or we have been justified, we have been born again, we are being sanctified and one day we will be glorified. We have been declared right with God. We are being transformed into his likeness. And one day we will be renewed and restored and with God forever. Amen. Now for the fun part. It was all fun so far. But Paul, in his letters, he almost always moves from theology, talking about God and who we are in Christ, to application. And I would be remiss if I didn't spend a few moments talking about some application here. So the first thing we must do to apply these truths in our lives, what, what must we do? Number one, we must devote ourselves to good works, to doing good. This is right out of the text, verse 8. This is a trustworthy saying. What you just heard, the gospel, it's trustworthy. And now I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. Christian, are you devoted to doing good works? Are you devoted and careful to do what is good with the time that God has given you? Saved people do good works. It's not the basis of our salvation, but it is the evidence. What are our lives devoted to? This is the fruit of being a born-again Christian. Are you born again? Show us by your deeds, James says. Devote your life to this, friends, and I believe you will not regret it in the end. So that is what the first thing we must do. The second thing we must do is we must not quarrel with one another. This is, again, right out of the text. Verse 9. But avoid foolish debates, genealogies, quarrels, and disputes about the law, because they are unprofitable and worthless. This is really serious. It makes me nervous saying this. It says, reject a divisive person, After the first and second warning, for you know that such a person has gone astray and is sinning. He is self condemned. What do we do with that? Well, because we've been saved into the family of God, that means we must treat each other as family. Because we've been given so much mercy and grace, we must treat each other with so much mercy and grace. Our speech should always be gentle, it should always be full of grace towards another. We must always treat kindly those who don't see things the way that we do. And because we will see things differently, that, that, is a, that is reality, and it can be a good thing, but it's how we navigate differences that makes all the difference. It's how we navigate differences that makes all the difference. Do we treat each other with grace, mercy, like family? We're in this together. Are we working towards unity? Are we working towards being together as a family? What can we do to build up the body of Christ? How can we refrain from fighting with each other, from division? Because, friends, our mission, it is too important. It's too urgent. It's too, the enemy is too strong to spend our days fighting with each other. We have to be united. A house divided cannot stand. And so Paul says the reality of the gospel means we don't quarrel with each other because we're family. We're the family of God. And the last thing that we must do is we must winsomely help others know how to be saved. This news is too good not to share, friends. Jesus is too good to keep to ourselves. And you're probably getting tired of me saying this to you. (laughs) I feel tired saying it. But until I have everyone coming up to me and saying, you know, Pastor, I'm sharing my faith enough. I'm feeling good about how many people I'm sharing the gospel with. I'm going to keep telling all of us that we must continue to preach the gospel, to share the good news, to go out into the world and spread this because it is too good. Our past, our present, and our future is secure because the grace of God. How can we not share that with others? So I want to end with a question I started with. Have you been saved this morning? Has anybody been saved? Have you been born again? If not, I would love to help you experience that. Friends, the arms of God are wide open All of us, welcome, ready to welcome any of us home. May you experience the joy of salvation, the joy of being saved in Christ. We're now going to have our choir come up this morning uh, because I want to give you some time to meditate on what you have heard. I want to give you some time to confess your sins before the Lord as we prepare for Holy Communion. And I want to give you some time to pray. For whatever the Holy Spirit lays on your heart, maybe for someone that needs to know this good news, we want to pray for them also. And so we welcome the choir to come and sing this morning.